This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And when you get a smile out of a guest, when you say the most dangerous Bible podcast, you know it's going to be a great podcast, ironclad rule. Uh, and today, Good Faith fam, <laughs> the guest on this episode is not only one of my favorite thinkers and biblical interpreters. I'd say this is the guest that I most often get asked to bring on the podcast, both from Jewish listeners and non-Jewish listeners, and just in general, the consensus guest that everyone wants to hear from. And I'm absolutely not surprised because he's one of the most innovative interpreters of the Hebrew Bible alive today, both substantively, you know, through his unparalleled a genius for textual interpretation, and technologically as the founder and the principal educator for Olive Beta, which is a media company devoted to closely reading the biblical text. He is the legend himself, Rabbi David Foreman, and we got a lot to cover, so we're actually just going to jump right in. Rabbi Foreman, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Ari, thank you so much for having me. After that introduction, I can hardly wait to see what I have to say. <laughs> Let us rock and roll. Okay, so just purely in terms of audience, you are definitely in the top 10% of biblical interpreters out there, if not much higher. But what distinguishes you from many other folks with large audiences is that you're teaching at an extremely high level of like textual sophistication that's also accessible to the average person. Usually you're going to have one or the other. So I want to start with method. Like that's the question I get asked most often. When you approach a text, what are you trying to accomplish? And then what are the steps you take to get there? Sure. Um, that's a really great question. And it's a question that has confounded my staff <laughs> from the very beginnings of Aleph Beta. <clears throat> because the answer is, it's, it, it, it's a little bit hard to tell following what we do in Aleph Beta. For example, it's, it sort of sounds like there's a certain set series of questions that I'm asking you about a text beforehand. And actually, it's a little bit misleading. That's not actually the way it works for me. Questions that I'll ask, whether they're the kind that are seeking some sort of relevance in the text, or whether they're even the kinds of questions that are trying to open up a question or challenge a text, usually come much later in the process for me. When I start, I actually start almost with a blank slate, and I'm just trying to listen really carefully to what's going on in the text. So what I'll do is kind of begin with something that I notice. There'll be something just a little bit strange that I'll notice. It'll raise your eyebrow just a little bit. You know, you're reading the story of the strange law in Parshat Mishpatim, the strange law in Exodus about these two people fighting, and then one of them hurts this pregnant woman. And you notice like the language for hurt is just, it's a really strange word, the nugfo ishahara. It's the kind of language that would either indicate, if you look at how that word is used, it either indicate God sending some sort of plague on somebody, right? You know, or an ox, an ox pushing up against another ox, but it's never used with a person. Right, that, that verb nagaf is the same root as the biblical word for plague. Exactly. He named no gate that cold uh cold in God says in the in the plagues of Egypt. So it's just a strange word. So something like that, right? And it will will kind of begin. And and I guess what's interesting about the way I do things is I don't 
really start with with an agenda. I, I remember I was a Doonesbury fan going back long ago, um, and if you've read the Doonesbury strips, you know one of his uh, one of his books is titled "Check Your Baggage at the Door, Please." You know the notion of, of being willing to not come to a text with preconceived notions or not come to a text with something you want to see out of it. And when I said that it confounds my staff, as I remember uh, my partner Emu, when I worked with him in the very early years, he used to always come to me with all these with all these questions. He says, here's this really difficult text, you know, what's going on? And he would have question X and question Y. And I would be like, I don't know, that's not really where I begin. I'll begin with something that I notice and we'll thread it through. And by the time you're done with the things that you notice and you begin to put together a holistic purpose of the text. The text usually shocks you and it starts talking to you about something that you never thought it would be talking about, something with profound ramifications that you never even imagined, and it's going to take you there. And so once it takes you there, you can then package that. You can then, you know, put out something for, and you can, you can title that and put it out and name it. But that's not how you started and it's not how you planned it. So before we get into some of the substantive textual questions that I had, so you've done important work earlier in your career, I believe, as an editor for a major translation project, namely Arts Girls Translation of the Talmud. Now, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Arts Girl, but many of them will not. So Arts Girl is a Jewish publishing house that puts out an incredibly uh, wide spectrum of works, but the one it's most famous for is its translation of the Talmud uh, into English, along with a running commentary. Now, unlike, say the commentary that you'd find in like, I don't know, the Anchor Bible Dictionary or, or the Anchor Bible Commentary or something like that. The Art Scroll Commentary, not just on the Talmud, but in all of its works, including on the Bible, it's almost always a digest of well-known commentators and jurisprudential writers, typically from the medieval era, uh, but also from the early modern period, as well as occasionally the 20th century. So how is working in the world of translation, and especially the Art Scroll style of translation, including its commentary, influenced how you think about your work in the realm of biblical interpretation? Yeah, it's a great question. I did spend a number of years working for Art Scroll for their Talmud project as an editor and as a writer. I'm really proud of the time I spent with them. And it's true that generally speaking, Art Scroll does a very, very different thing than I do. I'll tell you, if you like, a, a funny story about that in a little bit. In a way, they're so successful at what they do in terms of creating these wonderful, easy-to-swallow digests of earlier commentators that they, I think, have lured the public at large into this vision of biblical studies that that's what you're supposed to do nowadays. And almost like you're not really supposed to do anything else if you're a nice, sort of card-carrying Orthodox Jew, then you should be very happy to understand the really interesting original thoughts of the Sephorno or of the Ramban or of Rashi, but the subtle message is that those were greats from long ago, and the best that you can do now is assimilate their teachings, but you can't really do what they're doing because they're not putting together original thought for the most part. They're putting commentary together. So in that way, you're right. What they do typically is very different than what I do. But I'll tell you the truth. Working for them for many years on the Gemara project was a very fascinating experience and in many ways prepared me for what it is that I do. And I'll tell you why. I think there's a dirty little secret with the Art School Gemara project. Right, the Talmud translation and commentary, yeah. It looks like it's an Art School series like any other series, which is that it is a digest of former commentaries. And indeed, if you open a page of the Art School Talmud to anywhere, 
you will find a dizzying list of names. You'll find the Ramban, the Bechor Shor, you'll find everybody, all these, all these commentators. But the truth is, there is a mission for that commentary. And the mission is, give the cleanest, most intellectually accessible interpretation of the text at hand in the clearest, most transparent kind of way. Present that to the reader. And generally speaking, that will be Rashi, but it will not always be Rashi. And if it's not Rashi, right, then look for somebody else who gives you the cleanest interpretation, say who it is. But the dirty little secret is that sometimes it's nobody. And sometimes you just have to make it up with your own brain. You, there are issues that nobody really dealt with that are just very, very basic issues. And you throw up your hands and you look at all the commentators and say, I don't have what I need to be able to present this text. And at that point, you got to start digging around, you've got to start looking, you've got to start putting things together. And so typically what Archibald will do in a subtle way in situations like that is they'll make use of brackets. What they'll do is they'll put something in brackets, right? And just put it there. And nobody knows what those brackets are. Like, what are those brackets doing there? The answer is brackets means original thought. Brackets means that here's my take on what it is that's going on. I can't assign it to anybody. It's really just me. But this seems to be the simplest way of understanding what's going on. And so that was very liberating because what it said to you is that even in the most halakhic work around, right, the work which we which we use to guide, you know, our, our daily lives, right? There is room nowadays for us in a published work to engage with these former commentators and to come to the table and to say, here's what this means to me and to put them out there. And so uh, to me, that was, that was very exciting. Speaking of, of, the, of those commentators, you simply cannot tell the story of Western political philosophy without understanding the history of biblical interpretation in the West. And you can't understand any of the great advances in Western biblical interpretation, whether it's during the 12th century, for example, or especially during the Renaissance, without understanding the history of Jewish medieval biblical commentary. So just for an example, the revival of so-called plain sense biblical interpretation, like the census literalis in the Abbey of St. Victor, depended crucially on the medieval Jewish biblical commentator Rashi, uh, whom you mentioned earlier, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon, was studying Rashi. During the Renaissance, grammarians, political writers alike drew deeply upon the insights of medieval Southern French commentators like Rabbi David Kimchi, usually known as Radak. So if you had to make a case for like mainstream engagement by Americans in general or people interested in sort of the history of the West with a medieval biblical commentator, and let's assume for the moment that their work is available in English translation. So who do you see as underrated? Is Rashi like still maybe underrated? Someone else? Like who would you pick? It's a good question. I think I think Rashi, in my view, is misunderstood a little bit. I, and I'll talk about that in a moment. I will say that Radak is singularly wonderful, as well as, you know, the more popularized version, which is really just a popularized amalgam or almost digest of of Radak and Rashi, you know, the Mitzvah David, the Mitzvah Sion, which is a much more popular, which was a commentary that was intended to make Tanakh study just not so difficult anymore. And just to put it out there, I mean, those are great places to start. And I think Radak, I would say, is, is wonderful in just getting to the essence of what's happening on Anakh. When I say Rashi, I think it's misunderstood. I think it, certainly within the Orthodox Jewish world, I think, you know, one of the first things we do 
is we teach our kids Chumash Rashi and the idea, and it's almost like the word Chumash Rashi. Right, the mosaic books with the commentary of Rashi on them. It yeah. becomes a single word. It's not like, you know, Chumash Rashi doesn't translate to the mosaic books with the commentary of Rashi, right? There's the word with doesn't exist there because if there's no distinction as if Rashi is so basic to our understanding that you can't go anywhere between them. And I think, you know, a long time ago, I one of the most valuable secular authors that I read that prepared me for uh, biblical interpretation was actually Mortimer Adler in his book, How to Read a Book. And Mortimer Adler in this book basically says, you know, most books are not really worth reading. There's about 100 books that are. And these books are the great books. These are the books that challenge you, that you come back to over and over again, that you see something new in them at every stage in your life. These are the books that you try as hard as you can to understand, and you won't understand them at your first pass and your second pass and your third pass. And he gives you a guide to reading those books. How should you read those books? And he puts the Torah in there, and he puts the Talmud in there as part of those great books. So he has some really valuable insight. But one of the really thing, early things he says is that the first thing you need to pay attention to in a book is its genre. You have to have some sense of what genre it is. And if you misinterpret the genre of the book, you're going to start your conversation with the author, so to speak, on the wrong foot. In other words, he views all reading as almost having a conversation with an author who's not in front of you. You're, you are seeking to understand what they say, and then you have questions, and you try to pose those questions to the book, and you try to see how the book answers your questions. That's his view of, of reading. And But he says you, you really got to have some understanding of the genre of the book. If you were reading a chemistry book, and you're convinced that you're reading a poetry book, or vice versa, you're going to ask the wrong questions about the book. You know, the classic example I give is Carl Sandburg's poem about uh, the fog crept in his little cat feet. If somebody raises their hand at the back of the room and says, I understand fog can't creep, it's not a cat, it doesn't make any sense, this is a, this is a ridiculous book, and, and throws it shut, that's the wrong question to ask. You can't ask that kind of question if you're reading a poetry book. You have to understand the genre. So the real question when you come to Rashi is, what's the genre of Rashi? And I think when if you ask nine out of 10 people on the street whose children go to day school and learn Rashi, to say Rashi is pshat, which is to say Rashi is the simplest, most basic way of understanding uh, what's going on in pshat. And to some extent, that is true. There, there's a reason why Rashi got that reputation. Rashi lived at a time when pshat wasn't really settled, when there was a lot of complicated stuff going on in books. You're reading through the construction of the tabernacle. You really don't know what's going on. There's no commentary who really sits you down and says, let me walk you through it. And nowadays, we don't even experience quite how dizzying that is because we have you know, commentaries like Rashi and to some extent the Radak and to some extent the Malbin to rely on. So we never find ourselves flat-footed quite. But if you are reading before Rashi and you come to the middle chapters of Exodus, you're really bewildered. You just don't understand how to put this menorah together. So Rashi will take your hand. And, you know, one of the little secrets that made Rashi great and I think leads him to be so not prolific, but so accepted in the world is he just was a great writer. Among everything else, he was he was a master writer. He was, he mastered the ability to be concise and clear at the same time. And so Rashi will hold your hand and walk you through what's going on. But Rashi will only do that when he thinks you need the help. 
So for example, if, if you've ever noticed, if you're learning Rashi in the Talmud, Rashi doesn't comment on everything. Rashi comments on certain things. He'll comment on maybe a third of the page because he figures the rest of it you can figure out yourself. So he won't, he won't insult your intelligence. If you can figure out what's going on, Rashi will not speak. He'll speak when he feels that you can't figure out what's going on. So Rashi will explicate those difficult passages. The difficulty in understanding the genre of Rashi is that Rashi will, in his commentary on the Bible, sometimes break that rule. And what he will do is when he finds grammatical oddities in the text, right? Subtle grammatical oddities in the text. So, for example, if you're reading the story of Moses being saved by the daughter of Pharaoh, and the language is, and she sent the, the princess, sent her maidservant, right, to take that child. So Rashi will ponder sort of playfully what that word ama really means, right? The, and we'll notice that it's a homonym, right? That that word has other meanings. And ama doesn't just mean maidservant, right? It means arm, or it means an arm's length. It's a cubit. And here's where Rashi will bring in Medrash, and will bring in Chazal, and will bring in the sages, really the most ancient form of commentary that we have, but a very difficult form of commentary to understand, allegorical, fable-like, and Rashi will just quote these midrashim without really much explanation and just dump them down there. So Rashi will say, yes, she didn't actually send her, her, her maidservant. What she actually sent was her forearm. And then all of a sudden, you have this psychedelic view of the story where here's this this princess, right? And you ask yourself, what a second, is that shot? Is that the simple understanding of what happens? Like, here you got this princess walking on the Nile. Imagine you were the princess, and you see this baby crying, and all of a sudden, right, she's 30 yards away, and all of a sudden, you send not your maidservant, but your arm, and your arm, like the Fantastic Four on the comic books, just stretches <laughs> out there, 30 yards and grabs the child. Like, if you were the princess, what would you do next? I don't know about you, but I'd run screaming back to the palace, finding a doctor, my arm, my arm, you know, I'd, I'd leave the baby for somebody else. So it's this really, really weird thing, but the, it's what the Medrash says. And Rashi will quote these Midrashim one after another in cases where there's some textual, I wouldn't say evidence, but there's some textual trigger point leading you to that. And I think in our day and age, we sometimes confuse the genre of Rashi. We, Rashi. we see Rashi as pshat, and then all of a sudden, we begin accepting these midrashic interpretations as just what happened. And uh, you know, and, and some of them become so ingrained in our mind that if I would ask you, why was Abraham chosen? What does the Bible say about why Abraham was chosen? Nine out of ten people on the street who've learned Rashi will say, well, Abraham was chosen because there was idolatry and he refused to bow to the idolatry, so he was willing to sacrifice his life for God. Then you say, oh, interesting, can you open up to the verse and chapter in the Bible where it says that Abraham was chosen because of that? And these people will, you know, they'll they'll get back there and they'll see it and it's just, it's not there and they'll become very confounded, right? And it was Rashi. It was something that Rashi said midrashically. Now, I think there's a method to the madness. Rashi just wasn't being silly 
really. I think Rashi took Medrash seriously, and and Medrash deserves to be taken seriously. As like an extremely sophisticated literary phenomenon. It is, right? And it's something which we often glance over. I mean, I remember in Yeshiva days, and probably you in your Yeshiva days, how much time did you really spend on Agadita in Gemara, right? How much time did you spend on the more story-like sections of the Talmud that seem like these fantastical stories, which is the genre of, of Medrash and biblical interpretation. And yet, these are the earliest kind of commentaries we have. And one of the things that I've understood through my own work is, is begun to understand just how sophisticated they are. And if you can begin to peel back what they were doing with that allegory, right, and, and what their tools were, what the tools they were using, and what they were trying to say, they were trying to say some pretty sophisticated things. So Rashi, when you look at Rashi that way, Rashi's no longer just a children's book. He's not just taking your hand. He's actually giving you entree into a, a very, very sophisticated world. But it's buyer beware. You have to understand what you're getting into. And you have to really use your, flex your muscles, your interpretive muscles, to be able to try to get at some of the larger questions that Rashi is teasing for you. Okay, so substantive stuff, uh, or, or rather onto the, the substance of the text. Is Esau, as in the story of Jacob and Esau, is he a supervillain? Is he misunderstood? Is he something else? Yeah, it's a good question. I think Esau is a complicated character. If you look at the character of Esau just, you know, a little bit, you know, he is complicated. There are, at some level, he seems to be victimized by his brother, um, he gets tricked by him twice. He just seems to be, you know, the Charlie Brown with Lucy that always gets the football pulled away from him. And I think that the honest truth is that Esau is one of those characters that we have a real hard time, I think, relating to nowadays. In the Middle Ages, Esau sort of became emblematic for Rome, right? It sort of became a stand-in for, for Rome. There's uh, Esau, of course, becomes the progenitor of Edom, right? And Edom... Although Edom is, you know, a uh, significant regional power in the, you know, the early First Temple period off to the south uh, east of, of Israel, later on, at least in the rabbis' parlance, Edom becomes identified with Rome, who, who sort of takes up that mantle. What's fascinating, by the way, is that in Josephus, the actual, you know, the, the ethnic Edomites ally with the Judeans against Rome, which is so fascinating. It's very interesting. Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's, it's strange, you know, the, the allegiances of the Edomites over many times, you know, they change. You also have in Al-Nara Bavl, in Psalm of Al-Nara Bavl, you have the Edomites sitting on the rivers of Babylon. Well, allying with the Babylonians, apparently, right, with the destruction of the first temple and sort of getting involved in a war that really wasn't their own to get involved in. So, Right, and this is like Obadiah's condemnation of the Edomites is in tune with that as well. Yes, exactly. So Edom, you know, over history, has a long and, and checkered history. But once in the popular imagination, Edom became identified with Rome. And Rome became, you know, after Constantine, right? Rome becomes the purveyor of crusades and of horsemen, you know, running through, right? So it was pretty hard to see Asaph as just this victim of the story when we had suffered so much at these hands, especially in light of, as you say, Ovadia, Obadiah's criticism of Edom in, in other generations. So there are many, many historical layers. But I do think it's helpful for us to go back just to the early text and see 
you know, Esau, uh, as he's portrayed. And as he's portrayed, as I mentioned, is complex. One of the complexities is that Esau is not just the victim, right? So, for example, if you look back in the very first story, when he gets tricked by his brother, for uh, his brother sets up, again, to use a Charlie Brown metaphor, sets up a, a, a porridge five-cent stand, <laughs> right, right outside Aesop's hunting ground. So Aesop comes back really tired, and there's this, you know... Lentil-based psychiatry. <laughs> except the only problem is, is that instead of selling it for five cents, he's selling it for his before. He's selling it for the birthright, whatever that means. And it's hard to understand the meaning of the of the sale. Is the sale valid? Is the sale not valid? What does it mean to even sell your birthright? Is it something which you can sell? Is it does it mean to literally sell the fact that you were born first? It almost seems like something five year olds would do. Like if I'm jealous of you, it's like sell me the fact that you were born first. Now it's all sold, right? And so it's this imaginary childhood trick, but it lives on in Aesop's imagination, and he will come back to it with bitterness. Um, later. But the text actually condemns him there. You know, what's interesting about the Bible is that the Bible rarely gives you value judgments for people. It lets you make the value judgments. So you've got to decide what you think of somebody. The Bible's not going to tell you what it thinks of them. One of the exceptions is that moment with Asaph. When Asaph takes the porridge, right, you get the successions of verbs. I don't remember it exactly, but it's vayakam uh, vayelech, right? Vayocho vayesh vayakam vayelech. He eats, he drinks, he gets up and he leaves. And the fifth verb is a value judgment. Vayivez. And Asav devalued, he, he kind of threw it away as if it was something not to debased. He debased the, the, the birthright as if it was something that could, that it was, you know, who cares? Um, and he threw it away. And that's the Bible doing something which it usually doesn't do, saying like that was a mistake on Esau's part. You know, fascinatingly, if you, um, have your little antennas there, and you think Vayivez, and I say, okay, where else in Tanakh do you get the word Vayivez? Right? That one single word. It turns out that it appears, I remember when I realized this, I literally woke up in the middle of the night, it was like one of these holy cow moments, but it was right around Purim time, and I noticed it in the Megillah. It's, I think it's the only other Vayivez, if I'm not mistaken. Right, in the Book of Esther. So in the Book of Esther, what happens? Haman, who is a descendant, of Esau, remember, right? Because Haman comes from Agag, right? Who comes from Amalek, who's the grandchild of Esau, right? So if you if you do the genealogy, there's a through line there. So what happens? Haman decides that he has this intense hatred for Mordechai, and he wants to do away with Mordechai. Now, if you were the grand visor, and you decided you didn't like Mordechai, and you were second in charge to the emperor of the world, you know, what would you do? I think most of us would just, you know, send a little note, if you know, to the secretary of the executioner or something, and that would be the end of him, right? But all of a sudden, he decides he doesn't want to do that. It's not enough. Why? Because it would be too petty for him. He doesn't want to be seen as a petty person, right? So the language of the text is, He despised um, the notion of just taking out his anger against Mordechai himself, right? And instead, he decided to take it out against the whole nation, and he was going to destroy the whole nation. And by the way, when he does, and Mordechai hears about this, Right? He lets out a great and bitter cry, Mordechai does. Well, where's the last time you heard those words? 
That's Esau's response to Isaac, telling him, you've you've lost out. That's right. Oh, brilliant. And by the way, the Medrash picks up on that. Talk about the sophistication of Medrash. The Medrash yes. sees that and says that anybody who says that God takes things lying down and God is not an, an ultimate judge, God just bides his time over the centuries, right? But you don't get away with things. And, and with the, tear, the, the tears that Esau cried when he was deceived for the second time would be repaid generations later by the tears of Mordechai for all of his countrymen when that happens. So there's this whole constellation of connections. But it struck me as interesting, the Vayiva's connection, right? Like, what do you make of it? It's interesting that the text picks up on this one word, vaiva. So you could just say, okay, well, look, it's just a connection. It's, it's a word here and it's a word there, and it seems to connect Haman to Esau. But if you go a little bit beyond that, you say, yeah, but why is that the connection? Why that one word? Why choose that word? Remember, Esau's word that he chooses to decide that he's not just going to get Mordechai, but he's going to get everybody right, comes from a sense of humiliation. He was humiliated in his eyes. And it's almost like you say, hmm, humiliation, interesting. That's the context there. He was humiliated to just kill one person. He had to kill everybody to cover over his motivations, to make it seem as if there was a national security threat that wasn't just one guy that had this petty grudge against. He's humiliated. Well, now think about the word vayivez, the way it's described the first time, it was like the Bible is almost, it's its almost this mark of humiliation for Asaph that he despised the, the birthright. And then it, it starts to click. And I remember that night when I saw it, it was like, oh my gosh, it's almost like there's this double entendre in the Megillah. The double entendre is that you can read Vaivez Be'enav two ways. One way you can read it is the simple way, which is he was too humiliated to decide to kill Mordechai alone, so he decided to kill everyone. But the other way to read it literally, the literal double entendre, is vayivez be'enav. The word vayivez was in his eyes, was dancing before his eyes. In other words, there was something about what Esau did all those years ago that actually is the driver for what Haman is doing. And if you really want to ask who Haman is mad at, right? And the reason why you can't actually come to peace with a guy like Haman, it becomes a war to the death, is because the truth is you can only come to peace, you can only negotiate with somebody who's mad at you. But if somebody's not mad at you, but they're projecting, and they're mad at somebody else, and they're taking it out on you, then nothing you can ever do, right, is enough. So yes, it's true that Mordechai slighted Haman, and that's part of the issue. But that's not the whole issue. If you ask Haman where his real pain comes from, it goes all the way back to his great-great-grandfather. Look what he did. He sold away his Bahara. It would have been us. We would have been this great nation, right? If it were, if he hadn't done everything, and that vayivez is be'enav is dancing before his eyes and becomes the generations later this driver of anti-Semitism that at some level is above and beyond anything that Mordechai can control because it's not about Mordechai; it's about it's about his own family. So it's why I think Asaph becomes a complicated character. And and listen, like you have all these like peer reviewed papers on how, you know, a place that kind of in like the Neolithic period was particularly, you know, fertile all of a sudden correlates really, really closely with early adoption of the industrial revolution or the scientific revolution. Like there's really robust evidence for this kind of thing. Like culture is really, really deep. I love that idea. One of the hardest phenomena to grasp 
in translation is the importance of biblical names. So we had Robert Alter on the podcast a few episodes ago, the greatest, you know, living biblical translator. Uh, and I actually asked them how to convey this in translation, like how to convey the significance of names in biblical text and translation. And he more or less answered that it's actually impossible. So this seems like a great case for needing to understand or at least engage with the Hebrew text of the Bible. So have you thought about that, like how a character's name or sometimes name change can help us interpret a given text? Like, what are you missing when you're just reading the English transliteration of a name? Yeah, a lot, really. I mean, if you're reading the Bible in English, you're missing a tremendous, tremendous amount. One of the the feedback pieces I get most from watchers of our work in Aleph Beta is that the thing they're inspired to do most is to learn biblical Hebrew. By the way, and it's not just Jews. Oh, yeah. To such an extent that we felt a need to actually start teaching biblical Hebrew. Hebrew. We, we sponsor certain biblical Hebrew courses just to give people who are so desperate for that in, because what they realize is, is that the first step towards understanding is really to go back to the original language. That when a, In a book that's so dense and so overlaid as the Bible, you just don't have a hope of getting to the deeper layers unless you're willing to engage in the original text, because so much of it is wordplay, so much of it is is how words seem to line up o- over across stories. So, and names is just a great example of that, right? So, for example, you know, you've got a king in uh, in the book of Samuel who ch- the, who challenges Saul for the first is in Saul's first war, and he's the king of Ammon, and his name just happens to be Nachash. Right, Nachash the king of Ammon. Now, come on, you can't look at a name like Nachash the king of Ammon and tell me that his name is not significant, right? It happens to be named Snake. All right, that's the, the same word for the serpent in Genesis, you know, in the beginning of Genesis is that very word. That's right. So the text is like screaming at you. It's almost J.K. Rowling, right? Like, I mean, like if you, you can't read Harry Potter without, uh, you know, with or like Draco Malfoy. Come on, <laughs> looking at the Latin roots of, of where her words are coming from. So yeah, and and by the way, the text also will surprise you when it comes to name. Let's go. Let's look at Esau again. Esau famously has more than one name, right? So he's named Esau. And that's a really interesting name. He's named Esau seemingly because Esau in Hebrew comes from the word ayin sin vav, which means to be made, as if he's a made man because he comes out all hairy and 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 all you know, and he's just a made man. He's not just a little baby; he's a little man. So his name connotes that. But then, very early on, the text gives him another name, Edo. Right now, if you ask your average person on the street, you say, "Okay." Why does the text tell us that he's named Edom, right? So it's interesting because if you go back to the text, if memory serves me, one of the things that the text will tell us is that as he emerges from the womb, he's red, he's ruddy, right? So he he has that, right? He, He was the winner of the struggle for scarce resources of the womb, right, with his with his brother, and he 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 has all the blood and all the oxygen and he comes across ruddy and his, his brother comes out pale and callow. Right. So you ask most people, so why is he named Adam? You say, well, because he came out of the womb, you know, ruddy. But the truth is the text tells you otherwise. Even though the text tells you, yes, he did come out of the womb red, the text specifically assigns a different reason for why he's named Adam. What's that? Because just a short few verses later, the text tells us about that little childhood prank that Jacob, with his lentil stand, played upon Esau. And what happens? Turns out that 
Jacob was cooking lentils. Well, what kind of lentils? Red lentils, the kind that cook fastest. And the, and the biblical Hebrew word for red is Edom. Edom, exactly. And so Asaph references that word. So Asaph is so hungry, he can't even get the words out. He doesn't even realize it's lentils. He just sees something red. And so Asaph says, Halitani, which seems to mean like shovel in my mouth. Halitani mean Edom, Edom, Azeh. This, this red stuff. Give me some of the reds. And so, and the text says, Al-Kain Karash Mo Edom. That's why he was called Edom, which, if you think about it, is really a fascinating psychological insight the text is giving you, which is if you want to know why someone is named, and you think about nature and nurture, so don't look at his inherent qualities. It wasn't so important that he was red and ruddy as he came out. That wouldn't be a reason for naming him Mr. Red. The reason why he was named Mr. Red was because of a value, was because of his way of dealing with the world, was because of his impulsivity of looking at the red stew and just deciding he had to have it so as shovel me some of that red stuff. So that's why he's called red. It's like this sort of inability to look to 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 look towards tomorrow. So I think names are are are, are fascinating, but they often surprise you, and we have to be open to the surprise. In the Hebrew Bible, what seems like a disproportionate number of origin stories lie in like very strange, sometimes like even seemingly grotesque sexual encounters, right? So you can think of the Moabites and the Ammonites emerging from an act of incest between Lot and his daughters. But even the emergence of Israel itself depends upon the encounters between Judah and Tamar or Ruth and Boaz. So what are we to take away from this? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great point. And those, right, those stories certainly leave their mark you know, the stories of Ammon and Moab emerging from incest. The real truth is, is that those stories, again, are complex. Normally, you think of incest, you say incest is terrible, right? Well, the Bible actually, in both of those stories, cautions you from leaping to those conclusions, right? And what's strange is, is that you need to look at motives. And the question you have to ask is, what's the motive of the man? And what's the motive of the woman? So it's true, if you look at the motive of the man in both of those stories, in the story of Yudim Tamar and in the story of Lot and his daughters, the motive of the man is nothing to write home about. Lot gets, gets drunk, doesn't even seem to be aware of what's going on. If he is aware, he kind of lets it happen, right? There's certainly no great nobility when it comes to Lot. Similarly with Judah. Judah encounters Tamar, thinks that she's a harlot, a woman of the night, and sleeps with her out of lust. And so there's certainly nothing to write home about Judah's behavior there as well. But what's interesting is if you look at the woman's behavior in all of this, there's something noble about the woman's behavior. The woman is actually trying to achieve a noble end, and her back is to the wall, and she doesn't see another way of doing it. So in the case of Tamar, what happens? Tamar is actually, as the Ramban points out, performing an act of proto-Yibum. Yibum is is this law, which shows up later in the Torah and Deuteronomy, that when a man dies young, and he's and when a man is married and the man dies young, so there's a and there's no children, they have no children. So there's a mitzvah, there's a, a command, or there's it's, it's seen as meritorious for the brother of the deceased, someone from the deceased family to marry the widow. And the point is, it's the Torah's version of surrogate fatherhood, basically. It's that the child that they're going to have is there to carry on the, the name 
of the deceased so that the name of the deceased doesn't just end. And there, the word yibam is actually used in a ver- as a verb in that story. What happens is that's exactly what happened to Tamar. Tamar was married to a guy by the name of Er. Er was no great shakes. He was Ra Bene Hashem. God didn't like him. The Er, by the way, is Ra spelled backwards. And so Ra is gotten rid of, and that's the end of Er. And so there goes Judah, and Er is his son. And Judah speaks to Er's brother, Onan, and says, uh, you know, it's time for you to be Miyabemota. You need to perform an act of Yibam. So even though the law has not yet actually been formalized yet. What you see is that the ideas of Yibam were in the culture, that it was there, this was something that people did, and it, right, it's up to you to marry as, as brother of the deceased, to marry the widow, and to have this child. And then what Ona does is sleeps with her in a way specifically so that she doesn't get pregnant. So, Which is where the, the English term onanism comes from. Exactly. But onanism is a misinterpretation as well. Right, exactly. <laughs> Onan wasn't really that his seed was wasted. The sin of onanism was that he used her. He was willing to use her for, her, for his, the opportunity to use her for his pleasure, but he wasn't willing to do the noble thing, which is allow his child to carry on the name of someone other than him. And that's the, what the text says, by Yeda Odan ki lolo yazera. Odan knew that the seed wouldn't be his, and he'd rather waste it rather than have a child. And by the way, that's really the sin of Odanism, right? In other words, when you'd rather waste your seed than have a child that carries on someone name, someone else's name rather than yours, that's the ultimate in spite. Right, so it's like a total abdication of human responsibility. Exactly, T- towards one's brother. Right, if you think about, you know, later on in the Torah, interestingly, Yibum will become identified in the Book of Ruth as a great act of chesed, as one of the most one of the most intense acts of kindness that someone can perform. And you can sort of think about it in terms of like, well, who's the person closest to you in the world? It's it's your brother, right? Well, who's the most vulnerable person in the world? So you might say, you know, the vulnerable, most vulnerable person in the world is a dead guy, someone who is dead and has interests in the world and can't look after them anymore. Principally, the main interest I have in the world is if I don't have kids. So what about my legacy? It's like, and it's especially true when when being alive in the first place is like they say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Being alive is the ultimate free lunch. Yes, it right. is, right? <laughs> and so you at least want to have something for the experience, something to continue. So children become of, of great value uh, when you're no longer here in the world. And so when you are willing, and, and, and if you think about the most intimate gift that one could give to someone else is their own child, their, as, as the legacy of someone else. So when the most vulnerable person in the world is also your brother, and you give the most intimate gift, Right, which is the child, that's the greatest act of chesed. What happens is, is that basically Tamar at a certain point realizes that this isn't going to work, right? Eras died. Onan wasn't interested, just took advantage of her. Yehuda's shielding the third child, Shayla, because he thinks that Tamar's bad luck. She's already killed two of his children. And he, he doesn't know what we, the reader, know, which is that God was mad at Er because he was bad, and God was mad at Onan because he was spiteful. And so God killed him. And so Judah thinks that Tamar is bad luck. So Tamar really has her back to the wall. So Tamar dresses up like a harlot to entice Judah, but clearly her motives are noble. What she's trying to do is to 
keep the name of her dead husband alive, to do something for this, you know, whatever you think of Air, maybe he wasn't the greatest guy in the world, but at least Tamar was loyal to him. And interestingly, it's out of the union between Judah and Tamar that we actually get the scion of the Davidic dynasty, Peretz. Um, and so there's something noble, albeit imperfect, about that union. And I think, you know, getting back to your question about what is it that we make about this sort of sketchy, the sketchy origin of the, of the nations, the sketchiness really is the point. There's something about that sketchiness that resonates over time, and there can be nobility even in sketchiness, and to recognize the nobility in sketchiness, A, is something, but B, it's also an opportunity in later generations to somehow redeem that sketchiness. You know, one of the one of the things we have in our Alatheta shop, which you can buy as part of our swag and the stuff, <laughs> certain certain lines that we'll put up and mount on 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 you know posters, and it's and, and the poster is just is something that came, I believe, it was out of our course in Yudin Tamar, which is remember, but choose a different ending, right? And that was a theme that just appears over and over again in Tanakh: remember, but choose a different ending, be aware of your history. Right and realize that history will come around, that history will repeat itself. But remember that you're an agent and that you're not doomed. And by the way, that that that's the the story of Lot and his daughters, and the story of Judah and Tamar. Their respective culminations are in the story of Ruth, a descendant of of that very union between Lot and his daughter, and Boaz, the descendant of the union between Judah and Tamar. They choose a different ending, <laughs> and they and it's up to them. And the whole point of the book of Ruth is remember, but choose a different ending, right? I love it. If you think about what's going on in the book of Ruth, what's going on in the book of Ruth is here is a woman who is desperately trying to carry on the legacy of her dead husband. Her name is Ruth, and she's not even Jewish. She's Moabite, but she's been married to this Jew who's died, and she's come back, and, and she doesn't really have a chance. And here's this man who could do it, who's from the family, and his name is Boaz, but Boaz is checked out, and he doesn't seem to be interested. So what do you do? So Naomi's got this great idea. So Naomi is like, and if you think about what Naomi's thinking, it's like, well, we've seen this movie before, right? Like, <laughs> so Naomi says, I have an idea. Why don't you dress up in your finest clothes? And why don't you take a shower? And why don't you put on some nice perfume, right? And you'll, and I heard that Boaz is going to the threshing floor all by himself and he's going to be celebrating his harvest and he's going to be a little tipsy. Um, so maybe, you know, so she says, you go to him, right? And you go lie down by his legs in the middle of the night, and he'll tell you what to do. You know, just leave it to him. He'll take it from there. And clearly, Naomi is thinking that we're going to reprise the story of Yehud and Tamar. She is, Boaz is a descendant of Yehud and Tamar, a 10th generation descendant of Yehud and Tamar. And who does Ruth come from? Ruth comes from a very similar story from Ammon and Moab, where again, the daughters thought that they were perpetuating the world, that the entire world had been destroyed in the destruction of Stone, and it was up to them to get their father drunk to at least keep the name of the world alive, right? They, they weren't aware, so they have this quasi yibum act they're trying to do. And then if, as you read the text in Ruth, you'll find all these wonderful wordplays. Like, for example, when Ruth goes to Boaz quietly, says, Batavo Balat, she comes 
but Lot really quietly lamentet. Well, what does that remind you of, right? That's Lot's name. <laughs> right? And in all of this very suggestive language, the, the name of the grain pile is an arma, ayin, resh, mem, hey, which is another word for nakedness. And, and, cl- and cleverness, too, like deception. <laughs> right, so, so it's all of this deceit and sexuality dripping over the scene. And then what happens? Ruth lies down next to Boaz. And she's there in the middle of the night, and Boaz is drunk. By the way, drunk, what does that remind you of in these previous stories? It's also Lot. That was Lot, right? right. And Lot was a little drunk, and so the daughters had their way with him. So here she, here he is, and so he's vulnerable, and he's drunk, and there's this beautiful woman lying next to him. And now the question is, what happened at the grain pile? So what happens is, is that it says, So he trembles, right? Now, stop. Where in the Bible have you heard a man trembling in a similar situation when he's about to or was just deceived? Well, the man who trembles in a similar situation is the great-grandfather of deceptions. It is the Esau and Jacob story. When Jacob impersonates Esau, Isaac can't see in the middle of the night, just like Boaz can't see. And so he trembles and says, who are you? Uh, who, who, right? When he finally realizes it's not the person. And Boaz says the same words, and he says, who are you? Right Now, Ruth has a choice at this point. If she wants to carry through with Naomi's plan, right? she should just say, doesn't really matter who I am, go back to sleep. right? And then you know, she can have her way with him. But what she does is she says, she doesn't do that. What she says is, Anochi, Ruth Amatech, I am Ruth, your maidservant, the same person you rejected before, right? I am Ruth, your maidservant, who parasta knatech alamatecha, spread your wings over me, kikoalatan. She makes a direct appeal to him. And she's using all this like very covenantal language. Yes, and what she's doing is the opposite of Tamar. So Tamar, with her back to the wall, didn't give the man a chance. Never looked Judah in the eye and say, look, this is what I'd like from you, and took that chance. She didn't know that he would respond, and so she she resorted to deception, but there was another choice. And Ruth actualizes that choice, which is, what if you take the risk, and you look the man in the eye, and you tell him the truth, and you give him the choice— and Boaz ultimately chooses to marry her. And by the way, his language, her language, Anochi, Rut Amatech, also is a double entendre because Amatech can mean your maidservant. But what else does Aleph Ben Tuf really mean besides maidservant? Truth. I am Ruth, your truth. Right. As if I'm not going to deceive you. I'm going to tell you it's who amazing. I really am, right? And the Anochi, by the way, is the same Anochi that if you go back to the great-grandfather of deceptions, was the beginning of Jacob's lie to his father, right? When his father says, who are you? So Jacob's response is, Anochi, I am Esav Bechorecha, I am Esau, right? So she's response to that same Anochi, but it's remember and, cha- and, and, and choose a different ending. And in terms of the different ending, What's fascinating is, again, in terms of word choice, the text there in the book of Ruth says that they sleep together, they sleep the night together, but it specifically uses the only biblical Hebrew word for sleep that cannot be sexual, lamed vav nun, lini ba'alayla. So it's emphasizing specifically that there is a different ending. Yes, there is a different ending. They just sleep in the same house, but that's it. (laughs) That's right. So it's the seduction that wasn't in the end. So I think the point of the sketchy stories is because, look, life gets sketchy sometimes, but the point is, can you redeem it in the future? There's always the opportunity, right, for 
taking things up a notch and making choices. Uh, and it may take 10 generations, but you know what goes around comes around and there's a chance to remember and choose a different ending. So, so far, this is like the greatest version of this podcast that has ever existed. I'm like, I'm like panicking that we're running out of time. Okay, I'm going to try to get as many other questions as I can. Uh, okay, so structurally speaking, like even just from a literary standpoint, so the centerpiece of the Mosaic books is actually the system of sacrifices laid out in the book of Leviticus. The sacrificial system of the temple is like an essential piece of countless biblical narratives as well. It's not just the more difficult, like meaning not just in a more difficult book like in Leviticus. There's so many biblical narratives from later in the prophetic works that where understanding the role that sacrifices play in the life of, of the people of Israel is essential. So what's the best way for a person to approach the sacrificial system for the first time if you've never really engaged it before, which by the way, probably applies just as much to your average Jewish reader of the biblical text as your average non-Jewish reader. How do you approach the sacrificial system both literarily and conceptually for the first time? It's a great question. It's actually something that I tackled a little bit uh, in a series of books that I'm writing uh, called A Parsha Companion. Um, and A Parsha Companion has the Leviticus volume, which hasn't been published yet. But in the first couple chapters of the Leviticus volume, I kind of try to tackle that. And what I did, and basically sort of asked the question, your way of asking, which is like, okay, we don't have this anymore. So if we're going to read through this, what are we what are we supposed to get out of it? So the advice I would give to a reader, and, and I'll maybe I'll just give this advice quickly and, and let your readers chew on it. So one of the things you can do is you can actually go back to first principles. You can say, what is the first example in the Torah where we actually find this kind of offering? So the beginning of Leviticus, for example, will identify several types of principal offerings and everything else is a version of those. So those in the very beginning are an ola, right? A, a burnt offering or a, an offering that is... The entire thing is consumed. That's right. A shlamim, right? Which is not. A shlamim means a peace offering. And a shlamim is part of it is eaten by the owners. Part of it is eaten by the kalanim and part of it's offered to God by the priest. And then there's a chatat, which is not eaten by the owners, but which is eaten by God, it's eaten by the... Usually translated probably incorrectly as a sin offering. Right, a sin, a, a sin offering of some sort. So if you go back and you say, all right, so what are some of the, the original sort of moments in life where you have these energies, the energy of the shlamin, the energy of the ola, the energy of the chata, you get to some really interesting cases. And what you can then do is you can say, well, let's think of those three origin stories in relation to one another, and then play a little game, which I find very fruitful. The little game goes like this, right? And this is kind of a methodology point, which your readers can use if they want to uh, learn Bible with their kids in a way that's productive. One of the ways that the Bible confounds us is it will take a bunch of unrelated stuff and throw it at you, and you just get overwhelmed. Because, like, what, 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 are, you, what are you giving me five or six different things that seem to have nothing to do with each other and throwing it at me? Recently, my wife is teaching the book of Ezekiel for the OU, and so uh, as part of their women's Tanakh thing. And so I've been having the pleasure of, of learning Ezekiel along with her and kind of being her chavrusa for it. And so I remember you know, one of the, the the latest chapters in Ezekiel has to do with the building of the third Beit HaMikdash, the third temple. And there's all this dizzying, 
detail in there about what the temple is going to be like. This dizzying detail in the beginning of the Ezekiel having to do with this mystical vision of the chariot. And there's so much detail, and you're completely overwhelmed. I think Ezekiel is one of the books in the Torah that's least studied because chapter one hits you with so much detail that you're literally put down the book and you say, there's no way I'm ever going to understand. At the risk of using a really bad analogy, it's like the movie Face Off with with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, two of the most like understated actors, right? right? It starts with Nick Cage murdering John Travolta's child, and then there's like a boat chase, and like, and then there's a helicopter chase, and that's how the movie begins. That's like the cold open of the movie. Like it's only going up from here. <laughs> so Ezekiel begins with like the most esoteric vision and most exalted vision in the history of biblical literature, and that only goes up more from there. Yeah, I mean, it's this this divine chariot with all these angels and these wheels and these eyes. It's psychedelic. It's like you can't understand it without LSD. It's a very, very <laughs> difficult. It is. It's one of those really difficult things. So I actually think it's almost a literary device that Ezekiel is trying to relate to the reader how overwhelmed he is by what it is that he's seeing. And if you actually keep on reading Ezekiel and you actually make it through to chapters 9 and 10, you realize that in chapters 9 and 10, Ezekiel discovers a key which in retrospect allows him to understand what he saw in the chariot. And he says, oh, now I get what I saw. And he sees the, it's, it's like the prequel to the chariot, and he begins to understand how to interpret it, and you, the reader, begin to understand along with him. So what do you do generally when the Torah hits you with a bunch of seemingly unrelated detail? So I think that what you do is you ask yourself, how do I create a matrix here? What does this shape look like? How do I connect? Just play connect the dots. It's literally something you learned in kindergarten. And by the way, a great way to uh, to try this is, uh, I remember I gave a talk once in a, in a girls' camp about how to study Pirkei Avot, right? The, the ethics of the fathers, this section of Mishnah that has to do with ethical teachings. That's like an early rabbinic work. Yeah. And I just had a very simple methodological tool, and it was really just connect the dots. And I said, look, each of this Mishnayot, each of these texts have with four or five aphorisms in a single Mishnah. They seem to be just this welter of detail of these things that have nothing to do with each other. You've got to play connect the dots. The first thing you need to do is what shape do they make? How do you put them together? So if you say something like, you know, the three, the, the world stands on three things, on Torah and on service of God and on kindness, the first thing you have to do is you have to literally draw the shape, right? So what kind of triangle is it, right? What does it look like? Is it an isosceles triangle? Is it an equilateral triangle, right? What's at the top and what's at the base? How do you sort of understand it? And for example, if you can see that Torah, which is kind of a theoretical construct of law for how life should work, is at the top of the triangle, and at the base, there's two things that flow from it, and there is a way of relating to God that we describe as service, and a way of relating to people that we describe as loving-kindness, but we say that there's no such thing as really acting with loving-kindness or of service of God if everybody just figures out how to do it themselves, that there is some sort of structure for how this works, and that's what you look for Torah to do for the theoretical law to filter into the actuality of practice, and these 
two ways. So you've understood the triangle. You see how these things how these things work. So I remember, by the way, just parenthetically, when I did this, I, I did this for a few of the Mishnayot in this chapter, and there was a guy who came over afterwards and said, that was really amazing. He said, that, I've just never heard anything like that before. Uh, where did you see that? <laughs> So I was like caught off guard. I was like, well, I mean, you and I just saw it together, right? I mean, that's a good answer. <laughs> he goes, I know, I know, but what safer was it written in? Did, you know, what previous book did you write it? And it was like, once he realized that I hadn't seen it in a previous book, and again, goes back to this idea you were talking about before with Art Scroll, he had become the victim of an Art Scroll generation and had, had bought the, the lie, really, that the only thing we could do is read anthologies of what people before us said, but the notion that someone would come, that you could come with your own mind and go to this early rabbinic text and begin to see in it something that isn't written in a book and they could have meaning to you was, was completely beyond him. And so he said, I, like, I'm not going to allow my daughter to ever go to any one of your talks. This is terrible. This is a, <laughs> an awful an awful thing. And so, you know, it, it's, it's difficult for people to wrap their mind that they can do this, but it's a very, very simple methodology. And I would advise your readers to do it with the offerings. Go back to the earliest examples. What's the earliest example of an Ola? So you have the binding of Isaac might be one, but really even earlier than that, you have Noah, right? Noah, after the flood, seems to offer the very first Ola offering. Right, burnt offering. Burnt offering. A Shlomim offering, a peace offering, seems to be the earliest one, I believe, is the the peace offering, which is offered at the bottom of Mount Sinai when the people form a covenant together around the acceptance of the Torah. So, and then Chatat, Right, the the very first time you have that language chatat, interestingly enough, probably Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel, la chata chatat rabates, right, and the offering there, which could have been a chatat, right, but wasn't a chatat, and it was the chatat that might have been. So when you look at these three things and say, okay. What's the diagram? How do I connect the dots between them? Right? How do these early examples of karmata relate to one another? You begin to see a matrix for spirituality, which has implications far beyond the the realm of offerings themselves. And that's what I try to do in the book. What a fabulous answer. Okay, so la- last question. As much as this pains me, last question. So, what gets you most excited? when you think about the future of this field, right? The, when you think about the future of biblical interpretation, we're living in a really, in a time that, that on the one hand, you could look at the sort of anthologization of biblical commentary and look at that as, uh, in some ways, a good thing, but in other ways, uh, you know, a hindrance. But you could also look at this as really one of the, in some ways, we're kind of like on the frontiers of biblical interpretation in a way that you haven't really seen since maybe like the high Middle Ages. What, what gets you excited about the future of biblical interpretation? So first of all, just what you just mentioned gets me very excited, right? The notion that we are on the frontiers of a new era of biblical interpretation. It's fascinating that, you know, I'm not the only guy playing in the sandbox with these particular tools. There are others around. And what's fascinating is, is that we didn't learn from one another, we, but we we independently developed methodologies that were very similar, which I, I sit and talk with some of these guys like Menachem Liebtag and, and Yael Ziegler and others, and, you know, we're each coming from very different backgrounds and have settled on a similar suite of methodological tools and a similar sort of overall methodology and, and a great PhD thesis that that is yet to be written is like the genealogy of this of this school because it's the intellectual genealogy of the school because it's so fascinating to me. 
Yeah, it, 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 it's remarkable. And it, what's become, you know, if you read a book like uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, who uh, Thomas Kuhn, right. The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, it's not an easy book to read. I had to read it back in college. But basically, that book, it, it tries to go through uh, particular moments that changed science, right? The, the the relativity revolution, the Newtonian revolution, the Copernican revolution, these moments where suddenly the paradigm of everything shifted. As a matter of fact, I even think the use of the word paradigm in modern English really goes back to that book, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He almost popularized the term. And he asked this really interesting question, like how do paradigms shift? And what happens when paradigms shift? And what he basically says is that Every mature era of scientific research takes place within a paradigm. And what the paradigm does is it sets up an understood matrix of rules and assumptions, which everybody in the paradigm basically adheres to. You sort of understand the kind of question you can ask, the kind of question that's a stupid question, the kind of question that's a good question, the sort of answer that is admissible, the sort of answer that is inadmissible, the that sort of violates the rules of the paradigm. And he says all science needs to work within that understanding. When we educate a new generation of scientists, we're really educating them about the rules of the paradigm. We're, we're saying, how do you do experiments? What counts as peer review? What counts as, uh, you know, when, when you write your paper, what are the bases that you need to cover, right? There's certain assumptions that are made. And what's happened is that there is a new paradigm emerging in biblical studies organically. It's not like there's a cabal of people who came in a room and it's like, okay, you know, let's get the rules together. But it's magical and breathtaking, the notion that people from all these different walks of life, I mean, to take a secular analogy, it's almost like, you know, if you think about the development of the calculus, so who came up with the calculus? So we technically think it's Newton who came up with the calculus, but Leibniz also came up with the calculus right at the same time as Newton did completely independently. And you think to yourself, how did Leibniz completely independently without stealing Newton's notes come up with the calculus? And I don't know the answer to that, right? But it's magical, the answer to that. It's like there was something in the air. It's like this was the next place that mathematics needed to go. And what a privilege to live in an age when there's something in the air and where biblical studies is moving to a grand new frontier and a paradigm is coming together and people are are putting together astonishing works of originality that are that are breathtaking and that are not just breathtaking from the standpoint of their aesthetic value or even the standpoint of their scientific value in unearthing meaning in the text, but also breathtaking in the spiritual value that emerges from this. And, and for those th things to come together, to me, that's that's very, very exciting. And so, you know, to sort of bring it down to earth, what I would say is what excites me is, uh, you know, I'll tell you a story. A guy showed up and uh, I was eating in a salad store and uh, in, in Woodmere and he recognizes me and he sits down. And he says, you're, you're Ryan Foreman, right? I said, yes, uh, you know, guilty as charged. He says, let me ask you a question. You know, I daven in the, I don't daven in your shul. I daven across the street, the shul across the street from you. But there's this guy who sits down next to me. He wears a black hat. He sends his kids to the same school that I send my kids to. But I've gotten to know him over the years and he's completely empty inside. There's nothing left. He doesn't, he doesn't even observe the 
Sabbath on his own. He still pays his tuition. He's still part of the culture. He doesn't want to divorce his wife because he loves his wife. But spiritually, there's just nothing left. He's just going through emotions. What would you tell a guy like this? And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm not sure if he's talking about himself or asking for a friend. Right? <laughs> asking for a friend, right? And and I, I don't remember what I told him, but in, like, going back, if I could have that conversation again, I'd say, look, I don't know what I can tell the guy now, but I know what I could tell the guy five years earlier. And what I could tell the guy five years earlier is how are you approaching the book of books? Right? We are the people of the book. Right. But romances get stale. And sometimes, you know, our, our book has been around a long time. So how fresh is the romance between the people of the book? Can we freshen up the romance between the people of the book and the book? Here's a way to freshen up the romance. Right. What if you could give people a set of tools, educate them with a set of tools where they could begin to start playing with a methodology of simple principles, like literally everything you needed to learn in life, you learned in kindergarten. Connect the dots. It's such a simple principle, right? Take it apart and put it back together again. It's what every kid get does when they get an airplane at a Lego. They take it apart and they see if they can put it back together again. Can you do that with a parak of Tanakh? Can you do that with a chapter? Take it apart into its pieces and then see how the constituents' parts come together to make a whole so that it's not just a jumble of detail, but that it actually connects somehow. Where have I heard these words before? When you're looking at a section of text in Ezekiel 47, and it reminds you of Zechariah 14, and you look and you can put those two together and you can color code them and map them out towards each other. It's like, you know, the Bible critics were onto something, but it wasn't what they were onto something was not the fragmentation of the Bible into different authors, but the uni- but the unitary nature of the Bible, the way that that different sections of text mirror and play off of each other and comment on each other through these language plays, almost creating this internet of, of text without any electricity. It's like the earliest internet, all these hyperlinks, this web of information which is infinitely dense. And you and if you can introduce somebody to that, the first thing they see is, oh my God, this is a book like no other. Like, I just don't know of any book that's written like this. I go through Shakespeare, I go through Chaucer, I go through Milton, I, I've never seen. Beowulf doesn't have this, right? It's it's a whole new way of thinking. This These layers in the text are really something. So that's level one. It's a book like no other. Level two is that you have the tools to do it, right? In other words, a lot of our education system is like, you know, you believe the Bible's deep because some rabbi with a long beard came to you and yelled at you in fifth grade, right? So how long is that going to last me for, right? But instead of like having to believe a bunch of rabbis, having to read all of these medieval commentators and believe they were onto something, what if I could use my own mind and take the simplest of tools that I learned in kindergarten and just with that begin to perceive meaning that isn't written in any book, and this is what you thought of, and it's solid, and it's strong, and it means something. And then what if those insights are not just any old insight, but once you begin to see that insight, then a story that seemed irrelevant, that seemed like it was talking about something that was Nagfo Ishahara, this crazy case in the middle of Mishpatim that would never happen, all of a sudden is talking to me about some of the deepest issues that I struggle with in life, that all of a sudden the deeper layers of this book transform and become internally relevant to the way that I live my life. Give those three parts, that's a book like no other, that I, with my own mind, can use my brain to be able to understand some of the stuff. You know how empowering that is? It's like the moment that you go to the tell and you and and, and you're 
and you're digging around in the dirt, and you come across this Hasmonean coin, and you feel connected to Jewish history because I found that with my own hands. And you find, I did this with my wife. We're learning Ezekiel, and the stuff we're seeing, she says, like, I'm on a high. I'm seeing stuff that's it's nowhere, that like, it's not written anywhere, but I'm seeing it, right? And it's like, she feels like when I die after 120 years and I can have a conversation with Ezekiel, it's like, I'm going to have a conversation with Ezekiel. That's like, I have something to say to him now, you know? <laughs> That notion gives you this Kenyan, this sense that this is mine. You've acquired, right, like that, I love that phrase, a Kenyan, like you've acquired, right, in, in English, that means an acquisition. You've acquired a piece of this text. Yes. And, and so when you see that it's a book like no other, that you with your own brain can acquire it, right, and can see things that aren't written anywhere, but, and that, and number three, and those things are meaningful to you and are life-changing in how you live, so that just transform that person's relationship to the Bible, right? So now it's a whole new world, right? And what if you had not just one person like that? What if you had communities like that? What do those communities look like, right? It's a, it's a different world. So to me, that's the promise of the, of the great new frontier. Amen, Rabbi Foreman. This was unbelievable. Thank you so much for being here. This is amazing. Ari, thank you so much. And we're going to have to meet in person one of these days. Let's make it happen, Captain. I'm excited. <laughs> Sounds good. What else is there even left to say after a tour de force like that? Look, just read the good book and read it as closely, carefully, and with as much sophistication as a work like this demands. I mean, that's the best advice I could possibly give you. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere you can get your podcast and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul